Thanks for that reading of God's Word. And um, my name's Ryan Fields. It's my joy and privilege to get to preach uh, the Word of God to you all this morning here at EBF. Uh, and I have to admit, I'm especially excited because I don't know if you heard, but supposedly there were, yes, some verbal amens that were uttered during prelude to revival uh, a few weeks back. Uh, now, the rumors may not be true. We're still investigating. But if they are, I want to uh, welcome that by all means this morning, uh, if only because uh, it will be a bit of encouragement for someone who's preaching, maybe a bit, a bit rusty. So, um, But as you've probably gathered from hearing our passage read aloud this morning, uh, I'm going to need all the encouragement I can get in preaching this very difficult text in front of us. Um, thank you. Amen. I, I hear that amen. Good. We're, we're getting there. Um, so, Given the, the difficult nature of this challenging text and the reality of what's happening any time we're opening this book from God and reading it together, uh, we need to pray. So would you please pray with me? Sovereign Lord, you are the one who reigns in the heavens and does whatever you please. And by an act of overwhelming grace and love, you determine to become our heavenly Father by sending your Son and then your spirit, that we who were lost and hopeless might have light and life. And so as your adopted children, precious to you, we ask that you would hear our collective prayer for attentive ears and soft hearts, that we might hear this word for what it really is, the word of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning because of Christ. In his mighty name we pray, amen. So I want to begin this message this morning uh, with a quote from a much-respected New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson. It's going to be up on the screen. And I want it to, to orient us, or perhaps reorient us this morning, to the nature of Christian faith and what we are really called to consider when we open our Bibles to chapters like Revelation 14. He says this, Biblically faithful Christianity does not present itself as a nice religious structure that makes happier parents and well-ordered children and good tax-paying citizens. Thought I might get an amen there, but that's all right. Uh, it may produce better parents and tax-paying citizens, but the issues at stake in biblical Christianity have to do with eternity and matters of utmost importance. Heaven and hell, your relationship to your maker, what God has provided in Christ, what the cross is all about, and what the resurrection accomplishes for hopeless sinners. And see, I think what Carson is saying here is that if we think Christianity is simply a system for making folks into really good people who are nice all the time and ready to seize their best life now, well, we need to be prepared for texts like Revelation 14 to completely blow that conception of the faith to smithereens. Because as, as Carson brings out, what's actually at stake when we consider the claims of Christ and what it means to follow him and not, or not, are the weightiest matters one could ever consider. What the God of the universe has done for us in Christ by the Spirit and the eternal implications of responding or not to his saving mercy in the gospel. God has graciously provided us the book of Revelation because he knows 
that we need vivid, sometimes even graphic images to shock us out of our sleepwalking slumber and enable us to hear the truth about ourselves and this world and the vital message of God's holiness and love. In short, excuse me, I'm trying to get this thing going here. In short, God is trying to get our attention because he loves us. As one author so eloquently put it, when you know an audience you really want to reach is going to have reasons to dismiss and even ignore the absolutely critical message that you have for them, you have to get their attention by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. Well, I believe the Lord is trying to get our attention through the shockingly true images we see in Revelation 14. And if we will listen this morning, we will encounter this vitally important message that whose we are and who we worship determines our future as one of eternal life or eternal death. I want to say that again. Whose we are and who we worship determines our future as one of eternal life or eternal death. And we're going to see that today through three sets of images that write large the chasm between eternal life and death. One triumphant vision in verses 1 through 5, two divergent harvests in verses 14 through 20, and three angelic proclamations in verses 16, uh, 6 through 13. That's where we're going this morning. Are you guys with me? Amen. Okay, let's go. So the first of these images is given in, in, uh, that's given in chapter 1 is the triumphant vision we see in verses 1 through 5. Let's read that section again closely. It begins, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists, playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." Let's pause there. So now I get to add my voice to the litany of voices throughout this series who have been insisting uh, there are a lot of different interpretive options for what we're reading in front of us this morning. Um, so that's my blanket caveat, and we're just going to keep on moving. Um, from where I sit, I think the key to understanding this first part of the chapter and feeling its impact is seeing it in light the larger context of the book as a whole. A few weeks back, Tim Ophis did an awesome job preaching Revelation chapter 12, where we saw essentially the whole story of world history through dramatic portrayal. Do you remember? A raging dragon seeking to devour the, the child king of the woman clothed with the sun. I mean, this is Tolkien-esque imagery here, right? This is epic stuff. Well, here in Revelation 14, we're being given a glimpse not of the beginning or the progression of world history, but rather of its end. 
It's like a sneak preview within the book itself of where we were heading in the chapters to come, the victory of the Lamb and the triumphant vindication of God's people. And what makes this victory so dramatic is that there has been this cosmic battle waging. And Revelation 13, which Sam Griffin so masterfully walked us through last week, provides us some details about this battle and what's going to happen to the saints amidst it. Details that are, how should we put it, pretty discouraging. We're even told in a climactic line that the two dragon-empowered beasts make war on the saints and ultimately end up conquering them. Pretty disheartening if the movie ends there, right? We've got a tragedy of epic proportions if that's the case. But of course, it doesn't end there. And while chapter 13 left us hanging and not so hopeful about the prospects of God's people against these seemingly unstoppable demonic powers, chapter 14 emerges like a, a ray of light bursting through the darkness. As John looks, this time he sees the Lamb standing in victory. This is, of course, one of the most powerful images for Jesus given to us in the book of Revelation. This lamb is standing in triumph on Mount Zion, a place that in the biblical imagination is this climactic expression of God's presence with and power for his people. And did you notice who is with him here? It is the 144,000 again. Because you all have been so attentive to our Revelation series, you immediately recall that this is the same number we saw back in chapter 7, right? And like in chapter 7, there, there are some differing views of exactly who's in view here. To cut to the chase, I'm most convinced that this number symbolically represents all of God's people through salvation history. The total number of all the redeemed in all of cosmic history. And the payoff of this image is powerful. God's people, though conquered for a season, ultimately triumph in the end because of the Lamb. As we've heard again and again in our study of Revelation, God is sovereign over all the swirling chaos of our lives and this world. And our suffering is only for a season, and it has a definitive endpoint. And after all the waiting and enduring, we finally see here heaven breaking into this earth. And that breaking in actually comes in the form of a song that John is entranced by. Loud, powerful, thunderous, and yet the sound of harps in all their sublime beauty. This is a song capturing the perfect worship of the heavenly throne room and now being taught to the redeemed who join in the cosmic chorus in giving praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I asked Andy and the musicians to have the thunder machines and the harpists ready to go for today. So, uh, I, I don't know what happened there, but um, it's okay. The good news, EBF, is that this is our song that we're going to learn one day. Okay? This is the song we're going to learn when heaven breaks in and we are wondrously in the presence of our great God forever. It's clear as we take a step back that this vision then is one that vividly portrays the blessed future of all the saints, those experiencing eternal life. Whose they are is absolutely clear. 
These are the people who, in contrast to those with the infamous mark of the beast in chapter 13, are marked by the name of the Lamb and his Father on their foreheads. These people are the Lord's and no one else's. After all, in an image that we would do well to imitate even now, the text says in verse 4 that these 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They know and love their master and will never be parted from him. Oh, that we would want to do the same, that we would long for that, that we would be found in that number. But it's also just as abundantly clear here who they worship. After all, their their song joins the myriad of songs we've already encountered in this book, giving great glory to God and to the Lamb. But, and I think this is key, they worship God and the Lamb not just with their words, but with their lives. Did you notice that what might have seemed on first pass a, a bit of an odd... Oh, sorry, this thing is really on the move. Let me really attach this down here. Uh-oh. Something broke back there. Okay, we'll see how that, how that goes. Um... Their worship with their lives. I hope you noticed there was something that might have seemed a bit odd on first pass, a description of this group. When in verse 4, they're described to us as those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Did you notice that? Did you think that was a bit odd, maybe? Well, again, remember that in Revelation, we've got to recognize the prevalent use of symbolism to communicate truth, right? I don't think this is literally a group of 144,000 males who have never been with a woman. Okay? Rather, they're being described as virgins in a way that's vividly picturing their purity, especially in contrast to the sexual immorality that characterizes Babylon and the people of the world all around them. More on that in just a bit. Again, don't, don't take this description the wrong way. The Bible has lots to say about the goodness of marriage and the gift of sex within that covenant union. So this isn't railing against marriage or marital sexual union in any way. But what we should see here is that even as we often turn to places like Ephesians 5 and witness marriage described there as a mysteriously wonderful image of Christ in the church, well, so here in Revelation 14, we are encouraged to see an unmarried person living a life of sexual celibacy as an equally powerful image of how God's people are to keep themselves pure for our greatest and highest love, God himself. And I think the fact that this image maybe doesn't resonate with us as much says a tremendous amount about our day and the hyper-sexualized context in which we live, where sex is viewed as basically essential for fulfillment. An incredible contrast to all that, we have a picture here of these virgins who are more than satisfied in the God they love. So I have to say to the unmarried folks in the room today, I hope you will take great encouragement from the high calling portrayed here of demonstrating in your celibacy the purity of God's people who keep themselves from every false God for the sake of properly worshiping and loving the one true God following in the celibate footsteps of our greatest example of full devotion unto God, Jesus himself. By the way, this, this isn't about whether you are a virgin or not. 
It is about how you determine to live your life unto Christ now as a celibate person who in the midst of a sex-obsessed culture says, I will abstain in view of my bridegroom to come. And to the married folks in the room, myself included, we need to cherish and promote this image of celibate, single purity as much as we cherish and promote the image of marriage as Christ in the church. Of course, it goes without saying, we are not off the hook in the call to pursue the purity portrayed in this passage. We simply do it as those who seek to be faithful to our spouses because of the Lord and before a watching world. God in his wisdom has provided celibacy and marriage as images of the church's relation to Christ. And so let us encourage one another within this church family in in either celibate sexual self-denial or marital monogamy knowing that the sexual purity exhibited in both will powerfully set the gospel on display before a watching world. And let us see that these saints spoken of here both represent us and call us to live lives of purity and blamelessness in light of the gospel. For if we do, we will demonstrate in a powerful way how God's grace in Christ leads us to live lives that are described in in Romans 12 as living sacrifices, right? Demonstrating whose we are and who we worship in every facet of our lives and so demonstrating the eternal life that we are bound for, an eternal life of blissful communion with our God. Now the preciousness of this eternal life is made all the clearer amidst the contrast we see inherent in the third vision that John recounts for us in verses 14 through 20. So skipping down, let's look at that section closely next. Revelation 14, 14 through 20. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated in the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. I think this is a good point for me to disclose my alternative titles for this sermon. Originally, I had There Will Be Blood, but I I thought that was a little too bleak. Amen. Amen. Thank you. But the other major contender that got edged out was Two Roads Diverge. That might be a very fitting title for this section of our passage, where we hear of these two great harvests to come at the end of the age. Now again, broken record, there's different ways of viewing what's going on here. That should be like the subtitle of every preacher's sermon series on the book of Revelation. Varying viewpoints on John's apocalypse. 
But here, the main disagreement is whether these two harvests are describing the same reality in different ways, essentially one harvest the wicked described twice, or actually describing two very different harvests that come at the end of the time, that of the righteous first and that of the wicked second. I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table that I'm more convinced by the second of these options, primarily because the first harvest is described, that of the righteous, is described as having one like the Son of Man at the helm. An allusion to Daniel 7 that the New Testament again and again associates with Jesus himself. So I think what's being described in that first harvest in verses 14 through 16 is Jesus coming and gathering his people to himself at the end of the age in the way we see described throughout the New Testament and that we're going to see portrayed in more detail in Revelation 19 and 20 when we get there. Okay, Again, another sneak preview here. Needless to say, this is the harvest you want to be in, the ingathering of the grain. But here, the, the glory of being among the first harvest is really seen only in comparison with the horror of being among that second harvest described in verses 17 through 20. The description of that harvest begins in a similar manner to the first. Angels emerge with a sickle and prepare to swing the sickle across the earth. This is an image again and again in Scripture of, of the final judgment of the last day. But then the image switches a bit, and instead of a wheat harvest, we move to the imagery of a vineyard and the gathering in of its grapes, which are ripe and ready to be picked. Another way to say it, it's the proper time for judgment. And then we're, we're given what's surely one of the most jaw-dropping, terrifying images in all of Scripture. The grapes are gathered and keeping with the custom of the day thrown into a wine press where vineyard workers would jump in barefoot and stomp down the grapes until all the juice was extracted. This image is terrifying and perhaps incredibly offensive to our ears because of what these grapes represent. All the wicked from all of human history, anyone who does not belong to God and doesn't worship the one true God through Christ by the Spirit. No one can deny that this image is, therefore, incredibly graphic. As the grapes are stomped down, an image representing the wrath of God poured out on any rebellious humans that remain his enemy. We're told that the blood, the grape juice, from these enemies, the grapes, flows out from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, for those of you who are crunching the numbers and somehow forgetting your stadia measurement, what we're given here is an image of blood flowing as high as about five feet or so over the course of around 184 miles, or basically the distance between here and Indianapolis. For those of you who don't typically do the math in these kind of cases, that is a lot of blood, okay? And when we remember that Revelation deals extensively in imagery and metaphor, right? We've got to keep that in mind here. We remember this bloodbath isn't supposed to prompt us to get out our calculators, right? That's not what this is about. Rather, its intention is to conjure up within anyone who hears the soberest of reflections on the ultimate end of those who continue to shake their fist at God and persevere in utter foolishness of opposing him. 
The judgment of God spoken here in the starkest of terms is real. And the holy wrath of God against sin and therefore sinners is more unbearable than we could ever imagine. It is only appropriate that such a dangerous, eternally life-threatening pit is marked out by the gravest and most disturbing of images to get our attention. I was thinking this week that this passage is like signs you might see posted on the outside of a nuclear reactor or something, or an abandoned minefield where no one knows exactly where the mines are buried. Right? Think about it. I'd suspect that the signs which mark out that sort of utterly dangerous and destructive space warn those who come upon it in the starkest of terms. In fact, to do otherwise would, would be a moral monstrosity because there's an obligation to warn anyone who's just walking right through like a zombie, totally unaware of the imminent danger they're in, to wake up. Wake up. And, and if you have to shock and even wrestle them to the ground to get their attention, so be it. That much is at stake. God is trying to get our attention here by shouting in the loudest of voices and drawing the largest and most startling of figures out of love, out of deep concern for the consequences of failing to belong to God and worship him as he deserves. These two divergent harvests are giving us two radically different visions of the eternal future to come. The first of utter bliss, the second of unthinkable horror. And the stark contrast between them is what enables us to see all that's truly at stake in belonging to the Lord and worshiping God through Christ by the Spirit or not. And so the first and last section of this passage, the vision of the triumphant lamb and his 144,000 and the two divergent harvests at the end of the age, they serve as bookends then for a third section in the middle which explores even more of what it is that leads to these two vastly different fates of eternal life or eternal death. We have in this middle section of verses 6 through 13, three angelic proclamations that as we'll see are, are worldwide and function as these climactic messages to humanity at the end of the age, making a final plea and also giving final notice. You've been put on alert as to be without excuse when the curtain falls. The first of these proclamations comes in verses 6 through 7. It says there, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So first we have an angelic messenger going forth, proclaiming none other than the gospel message itself. Two, a phrase we should be very familiar with in Revelation by now, every nation and tribe and language and people. There it is again. In other words, the good news of what God has done in Christ by the Spirit to save hopeless sinners the rescue plan established from the foundations of the earth, it is proclaimed universally with an accompanying call to faith and repentance. Fear God. Worship him. Become one of his children while 
there is still time. As we saw previously in the book, the key question here as elsewhere is, will they repent? Will humanity heed this final call, as it were, to take refuge in Christ before the tsunami of God's judgment descends upon the earth and brings upon them eternal death? We're not told. Instead, we we move on to the second angelic proclamation found in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now here, a, a prophetic utterance, a warning more specifically is proclaimed across the globe. Babylon, the the culminating civic embodiment of human pride and rebellion against God, is as good as dead. This world superpower, looking unstoppable back in chapter 13, and leading the nations astray into unthinkable immorality and idolatry, it's done. Its fate is sealed. Though in terms of the book itself, Babylon's fall still lies ahead. Another sneak preview here. The Lamb's assured triumph and God's sovereign power enable us to go ahead and talk about this future event as if it's already happened and warn any who might still be flirting with her captivating allures. What we've got essentially here is an angelic plea along the lines of, you know that antifreeze that you keep sipping, sip by sip, and it's really tasty right now? In the end, it's only going to bring you death. Its sweetness disguises its utter poison. So stop while you can. Repent. Cut the tie. And this prepares us for the third and final proclamation, which is one of, again, horrendous judgment. In comes verses 9 through 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, who for, who, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now notice again we've come full circle to some critical things mentioned in chapter 13. Those with the mark of the beast, showing the beast's lordship over them, and those who worship the beast are informed about the end for which they're destined if they do not repent. And as we saw last week, This isn't about implanted barcodes or enforced Apple watches, right? That's not what this is about. This is about humans being owned by and worshiping something other than God himself and the consequences of eternal death which ultimately follow from it. Why? Because they will be recipients of God's just and full wrath against sinners, those who remain obstinate in the rebellion against him, those who intentionally exchange the God of all creation for gods of their own making, whatever they are. And again, this wrath is imaged in ways that are, that are nightmarish. Before, and as before, they've been tailored for the particular purpose of getting our attention, of waking us up. 
How could we not be soberly attentive when we are told that those who bear the mark of the beast and those who worship him will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb himself, that they will have absolutely no rest day or night, and that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. To be absolutely clear, this is an image we should shudder at. It is, it is truly horrifying. There is no easy sledding here. And I think if there's any point in the passage where we're, we're tempted to turn away, it's, it's here. To not hear the word set before us. But we must remain attentive to what the Lord is saying in his word here. For we are being told by that authoritative word that this is the ultimate end of all the wicked meaning all unrepentant sinners who have not received God's grace in Christ by the Spirit. Those marked by and worshiping the beast are simply representing them in the narrative of Revelation, as the 144,000 are representing God's people through the ages. In fact, the very statement of faith that our church uses to summarize what we believe the Scriptures teach makes this abundantly clear and, and points to how precious the gospel message of salvation in Christ truly is. We'll see this on the screen here. This is the statement of faith over our church, Article 10, the last article. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation an eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. That's, that's what we believe as a church, EBF. Judgment is going to come upon everyone, everywhere. As hard as that is, that's, that's right, that's truth. Revelation 14 isn't merely giving us the play-by-play -play of how things are going to go down at the end of time. It is actually telling us about our divergent fates. It's part of God's living and active word that speaks to us today and calls us, every single one of us, to some sort of response. Calls us to grapple with the fact that eternal life or death hangs in the balance of whose we are and who we worship. The God who graciously stepped toward us in Christ or something else doomed to eternally perish with Babylon and the beast. So I want to now speak to a few different audiences that may be here today hearing this very, very difficult word. First of all, I'd like to speak to the person who's here who, who doesn't believe, who doesn't identify with Christ, who hasn't received God's grace in the gospel, um, maybe you're looking in on Christianity. Maybe you've been invited. Maybe you, you ended up here somehow. Not sure how. If you're here, can I just say, I'm really glad that you're here. And I know how hard it has been here. It, it, it has been to be here <laughs> for this message today. And I hope amidst the static of what might sound like a fire and brimstone message, that you hear beyond my voice to the voice of Jesus who in his earthly ministry spoke about the horrors of hell more than most topics 
out of love for those who heard him. That they wouldn't be so foolish as to fail to grapple with the realness of eternal judgment and the implications of being an enemy of God. It was out of love that he spoke of these things. The hard reality is that the consequences of rebellion against God are disastrous on an unthinkable scale and carry out on an eternal timeline. Each of these graphic images we beheld today is intended to tell us something important about the awfulness of the final judgment coming on any and all who have spurned the eternal gospel. But the reason why Jesus came wasn't just to issue warnings from afar, to lob them in as it were, but to actually become the way that we escape this judgment that we all deserve. And if you'd be willing to have one more conversation, I, along with many people in this room, would would love to share with you about the life and peace that's found in Jesus. So come find me, find one of our pastors, find the person who invited you maybe to come to speak of those things. There's life there, There's, there's goodness there, there's love there. Next, I'd like to speak to those believers or unbelievers who are simply struggling right now to believe the biblical teaching we've beheld here on hell and eternal judgment. Okay, that's, that's a reality I know is at play in this room right now. It goes without saying that this teaching offends our modern sensibilities and then some. And even apart from that, there, there is a sense in which we should be repulsed at the doctrine of hell. When we hear it, I mean, to revel in it would be to show a total lack of compassion for our fellow image bearers. One scholar I read this week said if we aren't teaching this doctrine through tears, we aren't being faithful to the biblical vision. And I think he's right. And I've been working on my tears. I can't well them up on, on command. But there has been a soberness this week in reflecting on this and a grieving over the reality of what sin and death in this world are doing and causing. But I would, I would also like to very gently press us on this. Tim Keller makes a great point I think we really have to grapple with in his book called The Reason for God. And he says that, you know, if Christianity indeed is true, we should expect that it would contradict and even offend every human culture at some point or another. Right? So, so we modern Americans are scandalized by the biblical teaching on hell. But Middle Easterners on the whole are actually much more scandalized by Jesus' teaching about forgiveness and turning the other cheek. Hmm. Thus we, we should expect if Christianity is true, then Scripture is going to have to offend and then reform our sensibilities. Otherwise, how do we know we're dealing with the one true God and not a God we've, we've made into our own image. One that's more manageable in, in a day dominated by tolerance and political correctness, right? And we also need to consider how a global perspective here would really help to properly orient us to the realities that Revelation speaks about here. For one, that the church is persecuted and Christians are murdered all over the globe. And this chapter is one of the many in the Bible that reassure fellow believers that God will see that justice is done. These realities should give us pause before we determine that a God who judges is repulsive or perhaps isn't even worthy of worship. 
our brothers and sisters across the world and those who've experienced the worst atrocities under the sun would say exactly the opposite. And we need to hear them. And you know, this passage speaks to many other types of people out there as well. To those of us who are feeling apathetic to the faith, perhaps, right now. You know, just kind of humming along. I hope that the picture of the two divergent harvests would shake us from our sleepwalking and help us recognize the impossibility of straddling the fence on that last day. There's no room for apathy. To those of us who may be tempted by the allure of Babylon right now, with its appealing promises of sex, money, and power. I hope the angelic proclamation will ring in our ears this week. Babylon is bankrupt and her fall is inevitable. Cling to Christ, whose 10,000 charms are much more satisfying, both now and forevermore. To those who simply need a word of encouragement and a spur to persevere in the faith, to continue with the race of the Christian life amidst suffering and, and the burdensomeness of following Christ in this world, well, I hope you see that we actually have a word from the text itself in that regard for you. Look at how that third section of angelic proclamation ends in verses 12 through 13. A wonderful word. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Wow. All of this, the starkness of the images and the power of Christ on display to triumph over enemies, finds its proper culmination in a call for the saints to persevere in their faith and obedience unto God through Christ by the Spirit. Amazing. The spur finds its greatest strength not from the stick of descriptions of eternal death, but rather from the carrot of utter blessedness of eternal life with God. Blessed, happy in the deepest sense are those who die in the Lord. Why? Because they'll rest from their labors, and enter into the deep rest for their souls that Jesus promised. And lastly, to those of us who might be tempted to doubt God's goodness and question his love amidst the devastating pictures of judgment that we've seen here, let me remind us how powerfully the love of God and the grace of the gospel are on display even in this text. Becky Piper has made a very astute observation that anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And she draws the connection explicitly to our text when she says this, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion of hate, but rather his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the inside of the human race he loves with his whole being. I think we've got to grapple with that, if that's true, if we believe that. It is God's abundant love for us that motivated him to provide such startling figures in our text this morning. A love that loves too much not to speak the truth 
of the cancer of our sin that is real and will lead to death, eternal death, if it is not remedied. He loves us too much to let that go, to ignore that reality. But oh, how the eternal gospel is a balm right after we hear that word of death. For God's love didn't stop at simply informing us of our need and walking away. No, it went the extra mile by grace alone to provide the very remedy we needed and make it available to any and all who would ask without favoritism. And did you know that this precious provision is gloriously on display in this chapter? Did you see it? In a detail that's easily overlooked, we're told that the winepress of God's wrath was trodden outside the city. Well, guess what? That is not a throwaway detail. For in fact, in Hebrews 13, 11 through 13, I encourage you to go look at this at some point. The author goes out of his way to make clear that Jesus suffered for us and sanctified us through his own blood upon the cross. Where? Outside the city gates. You see, the eternal gospel is the wonderful, unbelievable message that Christ was willing to take the wrath of God with its unspeakable horror in our place, going outside the city and experiencing divine judgment so that when this final day of judgment comes, we won't be thrown into the wine press. For the glorious, unfathomable truth is that Jesus was already thrown in in our stead. He took our place. He bore the wrath of God for us. He went into the winepress of the fury of God's wrath because of his great love for us. That's the gospel. And it's on display here. At the cross, God's holiness and his love were on perfect display, making it possible that we who were once marked by the beast, all of us, marked by the beast and worshiping anything other than the one true God, the wicked, to be cast out into eternal darkness, deserving the eternal death as the due penalty, have now been made a people who by God's grace are the Lord's and worship him alone and thus have the unbelievable inheritance of eternal life ahead of us. That is a wonderful message of grace. May God be praised in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're calling upon you now because we need you to move by your spirit in our hearts to enable us to hear and receive this very difficult word. Lord, we, many of us, all of us are tempted in one way or another to, to turn away from it, to turn back from it, to ignore it, to want to bury it, to want to insist it's not true, to want to insist you could never be such a God. And Father, we're praying that instead of that impulse, we would bring our hearts before you in, in submission, recognizing this is your truth, and praying for greater faith to believe it, to live in light of it, to seize the opportunity while it can be found to find refuge in Christ and to go forth as your people having been redeemed, having been bought from this wine press.
of, of your wrath. Thank you for that. Thank you for the way the gospel's on display here. Help us, and may we respond as we ought because of Christ. Amen.